Okay, so this week we're going to do something a bit different. Um, it's not transparently connected to the parsha of the week, uh, but we will endeavor as we go through the this sicha, this talk from the Rebbe, we're going to perhaps find some connection to the parsha of the week. And um, the reason the reason we're learning this sicha now is because we're coming up in about two weeks is going to be the Rebbe's one hundred and twentieth birthday, uh, and this sicha the Rebbe spoke on the twelfth of Tammuz, which was the birthday of his Rebbe, previous Rebbe. Previous Rebbe's birthday was the 12th of Tammuz. Uh, in addition to being the previous Rebbe's birthday, it was also the day that he was released from Soviet prison. Uh, he was released from Soviet prison in 1927. So from then on, it became a very, very big deal, the 12th of Tammuz. It was his birthday and the day of his, of his release, of his redemption. Uh, so every year, the Rebbe would hold a very big Fabrengen, a very spirited Fabrengen, uh, a long Fabrengen. And uh, the Rebbe spoke this, I believe, in 1962. So as we're coming closer to the Rebbe's birthday and a special milestone birthday, the 120th birthday, so it, uh, it's appropriate and it behooves us to, uh, to learn something very special that the Rebbe spoke by one of these birthday for bringing us to the previous Rebbe. And that is, what is a chassid? What is a chassid? Can you define a chassid? What comes to your mind when you hear the word chassid? All right, Amit says someone that's devoted. That's uh, oh. some, Aren't other Jews devoted too? Someone that follows the mitzvot. All right, okay. So Clara says, uh, and says someone who follows the mitzvot. But the truth is there are many Jews that follow the mitzvot and many of them that don't, that are not, that don't consider themselves chassidim or aren't considered chassidim at all. Marvin goes a step further and he says, he says someone who makes the mitzvahs enjoyable. Yeah, I think, I think that's why Marvin likes chassidim because he likes to enjoy life and he wants the mitzvahs to be enjoyable, right? Huh? Okay, so, so um, Monica says it's someone who follows the teachings of chassidim. What does that mean? So Amit says, someone who goes above and beyond what's expected of, right? Huh? You, you say it's a brisker. Huh? I see you're, you know all the different cultures in Judaism here. How are you, Chaim? And for good, some, good evening. We're dealing with a very important question here. What is a chassid? Chaim, would you like to chime in? What is a chassid? Yeah, a chassid is part of the Hasidic movement. And before chassids, the Jew, Orthodox Jews were very restrictive on who could learn the religion because they believed only like the most intelligent could learn. And the Hasids came, believed that anyone can learn, and so it's not relatively that old. That's what a Hasid is. All right. So Chaim is is uh, using a lot of history. That, you know, historically, when the Baal Shem Tov came on the scene, there was like this gap between the learned and the simple people. Those who didn't have an opportunity to study when they were younger, um, and it was a, a, a serious. Uh, there was a class. There was like different classes in Judaism. There were the learned who were basically aloof and separate from, uh, from the simple folk. And the Baal Shem Tov and Hasidism kind of took away that gap and they brought everyone together. So that's, that's true historically. The question is today, uh, today, how would you define the difference between a Hasid and a non-Hasid? So there's a lot of things that came up here. One thing we have to make clear that, you know, devotion to mitzvot, devotion to Torah, or the opportunity to learn Torah is not something that's uh, exclusively in the camp of Hasidus. It's not necessarily something that you would define and say, this is what makes a Hasid different than anyone else. Um, so so all, all the things that we spoke about are all symptoms of being a Hasid. The question is, how would you define what is the definition of a Hasid? 
Now, if I didn't learn this sikha and I was asked the question, I would also have a hard time getting to the core of what a chassid really is. And the truth is, the only one that could truly define what is a chassid is a rebbe. <laughs> only a rebbe could define what is a chassid. Because if you think about it, um, you can't be a chassid without having a rebbe. Part, part of the definition of chassid is that you're a chassid of a rebbe. You're a disciple of a rebbe, etc. So this, this, the rebbe is going to define so what does it mean to be a chassid? Just the fact that you, you study the Rebbe's teachings, that you go and travel to the Rebbe once in a while. But what is it, you know, that you support the Rebbe's uh, institutions? What, what makes you a chassid? So, Rabbi, a chassid comes from the, from the word chesed? Yes, yes. So etymologically, it's linked to the word chesed, which means kindness. So um, that's also an answer. <laughs> Right, but, but the truth of the matter is, uh, kindness can be found There's in many, many people. Yeah, but it, I think it's a combination, Rabbi. I don't think you could define it in a, in a sentence. You cannot encapsulate it. I mean, that's my opinion. Fine. Exactly. You know what? Give me about 50 minutes of your time. Yeah, Maybe yeah, I'll change yeah. your opinion. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. On, on the contrary. But, um, but, but, uh, but again, so what we're trying to say is that the definition of a chassid See, no one mentioned here the definition of a chassid, someone who wears a black hat, because a lot of people wear black hats. In fact, they don't even have to be Jewish to wear a black hat. You say uh, someone has a beard. A lot of Jews have beards, and a lot of non-Jews have beards. So it's not, that's not, can't really, a chassid, yes, does have a beard. A chassid, yes, has a certain way of dressing, etc. But, but that's not the definition of a chassid, as all of you, no, no, one, no one even brought up that, uh, that option. Um, so what could be there beyond, you know, learning the teachings and going in the ways of the of of you know the, the, the ways that the, that the Rebbe directs us and what could be more than being dedicated to the mitzvot and enjoying the mitzvot having a certain zest and, and, and zeal for mitzvot you know what could be beyond that so in 1962 in this from bringing in the Rebbe uh, said a story he said a story that happened years earlier during the times of the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe so the Rebbe was the seventh his father-in-law was the sixth and his father-in-law's father the Rebbe Rashab, Rabbi Shalom Deiver, he was the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe. He was the one that established the, the Chabad Yeshiva called Tem Chetvim. Established it in 19, oof, 1907. Oh, I'm sorry, 1897. 1897, that's when it was established and uh, in, the, in the city of Lubavitch. Done with the history, and now let's go to a Fabrangian. Let's, let's go to page number three on the top here. At a gathering in the month of Tammuz here in America, so is the Rebbe speaking, though. The Rebbe speaking in the month of, you know, the 12th of Tammuz. Um, it's 1962, and the Rebbe says that at a gathering at a Fabrangian in the month of Tammuz in America, the previous Rebbe, whose redemption we are celebrating today, told a story about a gathering held by his father, the Rebbe Rashab. Good evening, Judy. Welcome. We're just starting. We're on the top of page three. Okay. A chassid as the Rebbe Rashab. What is a chassid? Right, the question that we started off this uh, classroom. The Rebbe answered, a chassid is a lamplighter. A person that walks through the streets to light the city's lampposts. So when the Rebbe said that he's a, lamp, a lamplighter, it wasn't some cliche thing. It was actually a real job that existed in those days. All right, in those days, there was no electric grid, at least for sure not in Lubavitch. 
in that little town. I don't know if today they even have an electric grid. <laughs> they probably by today they do have, but especially the town. The town. So like this town is still there. The graveside, the, the graves of the rebbes that were buried in Lubavitch was definitely there. It had to be refurbished, etc. Um, the original, you know, place and then you know the homes that that housed the Chabad yeshivas didn't exist. They rebuilt something. Now they have a whole. They have, a, they have a museum and a hotel. It's a whole thing over there. It's, a, it's an attraction, actually. It's an interesting attraction in the city of Babalos, but it's not, you know, there's a few peasants living there, the no few chickens and cows. Huh? No you can go. No, it's very interesting. I mean, you can go, you can go pray. No, no, it's in Russia. It's in Russia. It's not in the Ukraine. It's near the border, but it's not, uh, it's in Russia. And I mean, you can go, you can go pray by the by the oil of, of the, you know, the third Lubavitcher is there, the fourth Lubavitcher is there. Uh, they're constantly finding new uh, graves. They're, they're discovering the graves of other chassidim that were buried there, but uh, it's not. There's no community there. It's not. There's no real infrastructure. Anyway, getting back to then the town of Lubavitch, there was no electric grid, and at night they didn't have you know the, the the lights that we have over here. So there were these lamps, these big lamps, and there was a man who was called a lamp lighter, in, in Russian lampterenchik. And this lampterenchik, his job was to go every lamp and, and light it at night. It's the only way it's going to get lit. You can't just wish it to be lit. You know, no, yeah, someone has to go, uh, you know, someone has to go earlier and fill it up with kerosene or whatever, whatever they used over there. And they would have to light it. Now, I went to this uh, automobile museum. There's this guy who has like, all these collectibles. You know what I'm talking about? Jewish guy. Right, Dr. Asselsi has all these, you know, old automobiles, these old cars. And I, I saw some of these cars, they have like these little lanterns on the side. Uh, had, if, you, if you wanted to drive at night, you had to light the lantern. It wasn't, it wasn't a game here. You can't just you know, automatically turn on the lights. So anyway, the, the, the Rebbe Hashab says, what is a chassid, a lamp light? Right? So the guy that would go in the streets and light the city lamppost. In the past, uh, so the Rebbe explains, in the past there were lampposts along the city streets and there was a person whose job it was to light them in the evening. The lamps were high up, so he would walk holding a long stick with a fire on top and he would use this to light the lamps and illuminate the dark night. This person was known as a lamplighter. This is a chassid, the Rebbe continued. He walks with a long stick with a fire on the top, and he knows that the fire isn't his own. Rather, it is his job to use the fire to light all of the lamps. Okay? This lamplighter wasn't walking with a stick and the fire in order that he should find his way around the street. The reason he had the fire was in order to ignite and to illuminate other lamps. Chassid asked, so, so again, this is a conversation. A chassid asked the Rebbe, what is a chassid? The Rebbe answered, a lamplighter. So the chassid asked, what if the lamp is in a desolate desert? The Rebbe answered, even so, the lamp must be kindled so that everyone will see that it is a desolate desert. The Rebbe then added, and so the desolate desert should be embarrassed on account of the lamp. Now, obviously, the conversation is not about a desert. Right? It's not, it, you know, the chassid wasn't the dudnik. He wasn't asking, uh, one second, what about if it's very far away from the city? I mean, ask the lamparenchik what his job is. If he's paid to go there, he doesn't. That wasn't, apparently, we're going to see soon, there's actually a, a, a tremendous depth here. So the, the chassid hears from the rabbi that, what is a chassid? A lamplight. Okay. So he asks, in order to understand the role of the chassid, he said, and what if this lamp is in a chassid? And the rabbi said, yeah. The lamplighter has to go and light the lamp that's in the desert so that it should become clear that it's a desert and the desert should be embarrassed of its desolateness. Okay? 
Um, the Chassid continued to question. Again, he's not a Nudnik. Apparently he's asking something here. He continues to ask, what if the lamp is in the middle of the sea? Right? It's out there, that, you know, those, um, those, uh, you know, those lighthouses, right? Yeah, right. But it's a little lamp, a lamp that's sticking out at sea. The Rebbe answered, listen to this. He must take off his clothes, jump in the water, and light the lamp. He didn't say he has to go and get himself a motorboat and drive out there. Take off his clothes, jump in there, and light the lamp. Chassid asked further, is this truly what a chassid is? The Rebbe thought and responded, yes, this is a chassid. The story's not over. The chassid said, I don't see any lamps. The Rebbe replied, because you are not a lamplighter. Okay. The chassid asked, how does one become a lamplighter? The Rebbe answered, one must begin with himself. He must break out of his coarse nature and wash himself off. And then he will see the lamp in his fellow. A coarse person sees coarseness. And when one becomes refined, he also sees refinement in his fellow. This is the story we told by the previous Rebbe regarding the exchange between his father yeah, if his father, the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe, and a Chosu. Okay, th this is um, this is a very heavy story, right? Rebbe's at, the Chosid is saying, I'm a Chosid. I, I consider myself a Chosid, right? I'm a Chosid of the Rebbe, but I want to understand what does it mean to be a Chosid? The Rebbe answers a lamplighter. Okay, a lamplighter has to light lamps. You even have to go into the desert. You even have to jump into the water and light the one at sea. But I don't see any, any lamps. Got to be a lamplighter. What, what, what does this mean when he said, I don't see any lamps? You know, the, 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 another interesting story that happened with uh, the Rebbe Rashab, the, the same Rebbe, there was once uh, a, a, vener a venerable chassid who came to him. Was someone who learned a lot of chassidus. He was extremely wealthy. He was a diamond merchant. He would give a lot of money to the Rebbe's institutions. At one time, he was having a conversation with the Rebbe Rashab, and he told him, he said, I don't understand why you give a lot of attention to a lot of simple folks, simple Jews? Like, what's what's the deal? Anyway, so so Eva said, "You're a diamond merchant, right? Do you have any you have any diamonds with you?" He says, "Sure, I'm always on a business trip, always looking to cut a deal." He says, "Bring me some of the diamonds. I'd like to see them." So he brings, uh, well, I don't know, takes out the diamonds, and you know, till today they have the diamonds are, are kept in a, like a paper that's folded in a certain way. And I was when I was in yeshiva, I used to go every Friday to the diamond district go and do tefillin. So I got to learn how they, they, they folded things. And uh, Anyway, diamonds. So uh, he opens up the diamonds and he shows the Rebbe a whole array of about 10 diamonds. He shows him this diamond, that diamond. He says, this diamond, this is you know really, really special. So the Rebbe looks at it. And he says, I don't see how that's more special than the other diamonds. So he says, Rebbe, in order to understand why it's so special, you have to be amazing. You have to be a uh, a professional, you have to maven means like you have to understand it well. You have to know this. You have to know the business. So the Rebbe looks at me and says, "In order to understand Jewish souls, you got to be a maven. You got to be a pro at this stuff. You don't know how to read them. You don't know how to read them, so you don't see how valuable and how precious and, and, and how precious they are. But I'm a maven. So anyway, this Jew, this chassid says, you're telling me I have to be a lamplighter, which basically means that my job is not just that I should have my own fire. We'll see this soon, but." 
I shouldn't have just my own fire and excitement and passion for Judaism, but I have to ignite others. It's like, I don't know, anyone that I see, either they're also passionate or they can't become passionate. They're a lost case. What does that to say? No one's a lost case. Everyone can be illuminated. Everyone can be ignited and become a lamp for others. Right? So let's, let's see how the Rebbe explains this. Page five. The lamp refers to the soul that every Jew possesses. As the verse says, a person's soul is God's candle. Since the Jewish soul is a veritable part of godliness, a person's soul is part of God, is therefore referred to as God's candle. This candle may be a light and shining, or it may not be. In both states, it is still called a candle, right? When you go to the store, what do you buy? Candles. Are they lit? No, of course they're not lit. So what, what is the definition of a candle? A wick and uh, wax. wax, wax and wick. That's pretty much a candle. Or in the olden days, what they would call a nair was, you know, the little cup, the, the little bowl that you would put oil in it and you had a wick. Now you have a candle. What's missing? The candle's not doing what it's supposed to do. If you bring the match, you bring the flame to the wick, and you ignite the flame, so now it's a lit candle. But whether it's lit or it's not lit, it's called a candle. So the soul is called a candle. It's not called a flame. It's called a nair. It's a candle. That soul could either be lit or not. What's the difference? See, the candle is a candle whether it has the flame on it or not. Once it has the flame on it, what happens? It starts to benefit others. Who benefits from being lit? The candle is the candle either way. When it's lit, now it's able to bring light to others. It's able to illuminate its surroundings. This candle may be a light and shining where it may not be. In both states, it is still called a candle. The difference is that a candle that is a light and shining is fulfilling the purpose of its existence, to share light with others. Before the candle is kindled, however, it has all of its qualities in a state of potential, but none of them are realized in actuality. The fact that they are present in potential doesn't bring any benefit to others. A candle can thus have all the qualities of a candle, yet it is not a light, meaning a person can have a great soul, but it is not illuminating others. Since there are such lamps, which for whatever reason are not yet kindled, there is a person whose job it is to go around and light the lamps. Okay? So we've got plenty of lamps walking around, and many of them are dark. What does it mean they're dark? It's not that they're not lamps. They are lamps. As I will say, this is the definition of a chasm. A person may think, it is enough for me to take care of myself. Fulfilling all of my personal responsibilities and observance of the 248 positive and 365 negative. This person is told, however, that he must search for a lamp that isn't a light and kindle it. This is true even though at first glance it is impossible for him to think about himself and correct his own problems while he is busy thinking about his fellow. The apparent result is that a person must forego his own benefit for the sake of his fellow. Here, here's where things get a little bit dicey. So what are you telling me? You're saying it's not enough for me to have my own Torah study down pat. 
and for me to have my own mitzvahs figured out, I need to go and illuminate others. I have to go and take care of others. I see that there's a Jew that doesn't yet have a passion for Judaism. I see that there's a Jew that's not yet learning Torah. I have to go and tell you, I mean, this stuff takes time. It's not just the click of a button. You think you're just going to write something on social media and people are going to get excited. To go and find a Jew and to excite them about Torah and about mitzvahs takes time and energy. Time and energy that could have been spent on nurturing my own Judaism, nurturing my own spirituality. And what am I being told? That I have to give up my own growth in order to ensure someone else grows as a result. How can you do such a thing? What gives you the right to take away from your own growth to benefit others? And the I was going to explain how there's actually some very, very serious arguments against the morality of doing so. Listen to this. This is especially questionable considering the fact that the benefit for his fellow is in doubt, while his own personal benefit is certain. In general, there's a rule in Judaism when there's something that the way it's said, the way it's the Talmudic language is like this: Bari veshema, Bari aduf. Bari means certainty, Shema means uncertain, like questionable. So if you have two options, one of them is certain, one of them is questionable, it's better to deal with that which is certain. Bari aduf, that which is certain, is is something that you should get involved. So here's this: his fellow has free choice. To the extent that God himself exhorts him to choose life, he must choose this himself. God indeed helps, but the choice is in his own hands. When a fellow Jew comes to attempt to kindle his soul, success is only doubtful. As a being with free choice, it isn't certain whether he will listen to it. You see, when the, when the lantern chick, when the lamplighter walks around with his big stick and he goes to the lamp, yeah, it's going to do its thing. He knows for a fact he's going to light all the lamps there's going to be light in the city. But when you walk around, you, when you go to a Jew, you try to inspire a Jew to learn Torah, to do mitzvahs, success is not 100% guaranteed. Maybe the person will say, I'm not interested. Go away. Vey, I just wasted a half hour getting there. I just wasted time finding the place. I just wasted my And he tried. He didn't want. He blew me off. I have to go back. I just wasted an hour trying to inspire a Jew to do a mitzvah, to learn Torah. And that's it. A waste of time. Right? Isn't it a waste of time? No, you don't think so? You're already a chassid. You're already a chassid. You know, you're already, you know, the, you already think like a chassid. Hold on. Let, first, let's think like, you know, uh, I say a cut and dry. Uh, what? Thank you. All right. First, first, you have to think like a selfish person. Then we can, then we can understand why, why we can understand the morality of being selfish. Who gave you the right to stay back at grade 10 and not reach to grade 12? The reason why you have such lie, the reason why you have such potential, the reason why you have access to Torah study and to mitzvah is just that you should grow. What? You know, can't be stagnant. Can't just stay back. You got to keep on growing. Who gave you the right to waste time on something that is not certain at all? Huh? Don't worry, don't worry. This is just to get to the point. Everyone here knows what the answer is. However, concerning his own conduct, 
we are promised that one who seeks to become purified will be assisted. If a person seeks this, God will assist him to overcome his negative inclination as it is taught. I created the negative inclination and I created an antidote for it. What's the antidote? What's the vaccine for the, the Yetzir Hara, for the evil inclination? Tyra. Tyra. Whenever the evil inclination comes and tries to rear its ugly head and force you in a certain direction, grab a Torah book, open it up, you'll see wonders. By the way, it works. It really does work. <laughs> Your mind is going kukuriku. You're, you know, your mind is going somewhere. If you, if you pull out a Torah book, at least for that those moments that you're learning Torah, that's for sure, right? The chances are that it's going to have an impact afterwards as well. Everyone has been given the antidote and the ability to overcome the negative inclination if we only truly desire it. As our sages taught, if one works hard, he will be successful. But if someone says, I've worked hard and was not successful, he is not believed. It is impossible for hard work not to succeed. And lack of success is an indication that one didn't work hard enough. Okay, so the fact that I'm going to successfully inspire another, that's in doubt. Why? Because that person has free choice. He doesn't have to be inspired. He doesn't have to go along with it. He could choose not to. And with regard to myself, it is very clear. If I'm going to try, I will succeed. So I have two options. I could either deal with the uncertainty of spending my time and energy and trying to inspire a fellow Jew to, get, to become passionate about Judaism and to learn to do another mitzvah. Very, very iffy if that's going to work. <laughs> Trust me, <laughs> it's very iffy a lot of times um, if it's going to work. On the other hand, if I would take that same hour, two hours, three hours, and I would invest that in growing on my own Torah study, my own learning, I'm definitely going to grow. Because God says, if you want to become holy or you want to become purified, I will help you. If you will work hard, you will succeed. It's without a question, right? Firstly, therefore, it would seem incorrect to seek out and kindle one's fellow's lamps while one can occupy himself with his own divine service because a person is responsible primarily over himself and should first decorate yourself and then decorate others. So first of all, I have myself to take care of. That's number one. Number two, in addition, there is the point of certainty versus doubt. Influencing others has doubtful prospects of success. While personal work is guaranteed to succeed. What justification is there then to give up one's own benefit with the consideration that perhaps he will be able to benefit his fellow? This is a very, very serious moral question. It's a very serious halakhic question. And by the way, don't think that the entire Jewish world is on board with the answer that's being provided here. Till today, we'll find thousands of Jews who will say, I don't understand how you can take off two, three weeks from yeshiva to go to some godforsaken who knows what, the boondocks, to seek out a few yidalach, a few Jews, and maybe you'll convince them to put on tefillin, put up a mezuzah, sell them a Jewish book. I think it's crazy. It's like, what is that supposed to mean? So what right does the Rebbe have in sending out his yeshiva boys on such missions called the summer Merkishlich is to go out into the most far and most forsaken places. Forget about that even. Passover for Pesach. Where should a yeshiva boy be? Either in the yeshiva or at home. You know where the yeshiva boys that are 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, you know what they're doing on Pesach? They're running to some who knows what, putting together a seder on their own so that 10 Jews on some, some, some island should have matzah. 
And as a result, their Pesach is not that, uh, how would you say, not that picture perfect. You know, they're not with their family and they're not with all big Seder. And uh, for most of the time, they don't have services there. There's no minion, there's no show. There's no, I mean, what, what's going on here? What are we doing? We're taking guys that they have a home to be, that yeshiva they could be, and they could be growing in their appreciation for Torah and mitzvahs and for the Seder and for the experience of Exodus and all of that. And what do we do? We're sending them off to who knows what, right? But the Rebbe did this already for 70, 80 years this has been going on. And I believe by now it has been proven that this is the only thing that will save the Jewish nation that has saved the Jewish nation. The, the, how do you say, the 5,000 Chabad emissaries out there in the world, most of their posts became posts because of the yeshiva students coming and spending their weeks and months and whatever it is. Besides the yeshiva students, I mean, talk about just the, the concept of a young couple making the commitment that they're going to live far away from any normative Judaism, any normative Jewish community in order to set up a community where they are. And it's not easy. We'll give them the right to do so. And that they're going to raise their kids in such a place, but where is the moral right, the halachic right for them to do such a thing? And what is the, what, what's the Rebbe Hashab saying? That's a chassid, my friend. That's a chassid. A chassid is someone who's a lamplighter, even though there are many reasons, halachic reasons, arguments to say that it's incorrect, that it's inappropriate. Let's go page eight. Answer to this question is that this exactly is the definition of a chassid. Oh, so why? What's the definition of a chassid? The definition of a chassid is someone who forgoes his own benefit for the benefit of others. Where does this come from? The Alter Rebbe was the first one to actually articulate this, but the Alter Rebbe didn't make it up. The Alter Rebbe articulated it and based it on a teaching in the Talmud. See, nothing is new. It all comes from the earliest, earliest sources. It is well known that Chassidim once asked the Alter Rebbe. I don't know if it was Chassidim. No. All right. They asked, what is a Chassid? The Alter Rebbe responded. I think the translation is a little bit off. But okay, anyway. A Chassid is someone who gives up his own benefit in order to do a favor for a fellow. What does that mean? The Alter Rebbe adduced proof for this from the revealed dimension of Torah. The Talmud teaches that there are three possible ways to dispose of fingernails. All right, here we go. You cut your fingers. No, not your fingers. Your fingernails. You cut your fingernails. There's a Jewish way to cut your fingernails. There's a, there's a law. Oh, you see, Monica knows. She's oh, all the different ways how to count it, how to do it. Yeah. So I'll give you a little bit. Well, all right, so let's do a little bit of a rundown on the Jewish way of cutting fingernails. Um, first of all, as Monica just said, you, you shouldn't cut the hand nails and your toenails on the same day. There are two different days. Good. Don't do it on Thursday. You didn't know that? You didn't know that? Don't do it on Thursday. Right. Both of them don't do on Thursday. Right. Shabbat, do it on Friday. Shabbat, but not on Thursday. I'm not going to get into the details of that. Don't do it on Thursday. Don't do the hand and, and the feet on the same day. Also, now this one's going to be a little bit difficult uh, to remember easily, but there's an order of how to cut those nails. Yeah, believe it or not, there's an order. Take your left hand, this finger, the one next to the pinky. What's it called? The ring finger? Ring finger. Start with the ring finger. 
skip to the pointer finger, then go to pinky, middle finger, thumb. I confused you. <laughs> Just start with your ring finger and skip. No, 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 no. This, this, and pinky. Huh? No, no, she didn't say that. That's what she said? I won't mix it, but this is what I'm teaching. This, 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 this. After you get to this thumb, jump to this pointy finger. Ring, boom, boom, boom. Anyway, don't Today is not fingernail, but there, there's a Jewish law of how to how to do with fingernails, not just in the when to cut them. Good question. I don't know. I don't know. There's, then you have to ask the Rebbitson. She files her nails. So anyway, so uh, the question is, what do you do afterwards with the fingernails? So you're saying just flush them out of the toilet, right? Okay, that's what many people do. Yes, you have to get rid of them. Get rid of them. Don't put them on the floor. So in Judaism, it, it explains that putting them on the floor, uh, there's a certain, if a, if a woman who's pregnant steps over them, it could, it could have a detrimental effect on the, on the fetus. She could have a miscarriage. I don't understand why, but anyway, this is what's taught us in the Talmud. So here, li listen, to, listen to this from the Talmud. Source one, tractate Nida. The next case of Rabbi Shimon regarding dangerous actions is one who removes his nails and throws them in a public area. The Gemara explains that this is dangerous because a pregnant woman might pass over them and this can cause her to miscarry. Okay. The sages taught three matters were stated with regard to removing nails. One who burns them is pious, calls a chassid. That's the, that's the word in the Talmud, a chassid. So a chassid burns the nails as he eradicates them entirely. So it's impossible for a pregnant woman to ever step over them. One who buries them is on the slightly lower level of a righteous individual. He's a tzaddik. That's a the term tzaddik is used for someone who takes the nails and buries them in the ground. Why is he not a chassid? Because when the chassid burns the nails, so he's getting rid of them, it's impossible for them ever to be revealed and for a woman to ever get uh, affected by it. But if you bury it, a dog might come and unbury it, and then the, the, the nails are revealed, and then it could be a, it could be a liability. And one who simply throws them where a person might step upon them is wicked, a rasha. Just throwing them on the floor, that's a rush. Now, why? So, so let, let's, okay, forget about the rush. Yeah, of course, you shouldn't throw them on the floor. The question here is, what's the difference between burning them and burying them? He said, if you bury them, that, but they might become uncovered. So why wouldn't everyone burn them? Why wouldn't everyone burn the nails? Why would someone even bury them? Burn. Too complicated. What, to bury or to burn? First of all, in the olden days, everyone had fires. Everyone had fires. I'm not the whatever. And in the olden days, everyone had a fire. Yeah, you cooked supper, you had a fire. You throw it, finished. You know what I'm saying? You, you took care of it. Everyone had a fire. But, why, but here's the thing. You're talking about a guy who's not a Russia. He's not an evil person. He's not wicked. And therefore, he doesn't want to throw his nails on the floor, right? He doesn't want someone to be affected by it. He doesn't want the woman to miscarry. Why wouldn't he burn them? Why is he burying them? Let's say both options are equally... Easy to do. Why would he choose to bury instead of burning? Page nine. Page nine. Taisvis Harosh, one who burns them is pious. The Aruch explains that it is considered an act of piety because burning fingernails or any other part of a person's body negatively affects him. We're talking here on a spiritual level. Burning a part of yourself, taking a part of your that was part of your body and burning it negatively affects you. 
And it is also, and it also has a very foul smell when being burnt. Therefore, one who burns them is called a chassid. Why is he burning them? For the benefit of others. But it's the benefit of others to the detriment of himself. He's endangering himself and he's opening himself up to a terrible stench, terrible smell, but he's doing it in order to benefit others. Fine. So this is, so, so the author never said, so what's the definition of a chassid? Talmud says what the definition of a chassid is. The definition of a chassid is someone who is willing to benefit others even at his own personal detriment. All right, now we can, now we can uh, comport this definition to our story of the lamplighter, right? The lamplighter has to go out and ignite other, other lamps. A chassid has to go out and inspire others to learn Torah and the mitzvahs. But do you know for sure that you'll be successful? Do you realize that you all that time that's spent on others is time that you don't have for yourself? Who gave you the moral right to do so? The answer is, well, that's what a chassid is. In other words, it's not that we're going to logically explain to you. No, no, no. Go and invest the time. You'll see there will be benefits. You'll see that there are going to be tremendous fruits. You'll see that you're going to be successful. Never didn't say that yet. <laughs> That's not the argument. The argument is not your time won't be wasted. The argument is it might be wasted. Do it anyway. That's a chassid. A chassid jumps out of the yeshiva. A chassid jumps out of the community and goes to who knows where in order to inspire others to learn Torah and do mitzvahs, not because they have a guarantee that they will be successful. He does because that's what's expected. He or she, it's not just, it's not just a, a male thing. It's a female thing too. So this is a very important point to, 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 to make here. Success is not guaranteed. Success with yourself is always guaranteed. When you work on yourself and you want to be better and you'll work hard enough, you'll definitely succeed. With others, there's no guarantee at all. Proof to that, they're their own people, right? They have their own free will. They're individuals. God could help, but if they don't want it, that's it. We're done. Heavy stuff here, huh? In other words, they're ever saying, I'm not guaranteeing your success, but that's what a chazid is. True, it might be to your detriment. You might lose that. You probably will lose that. That's what being a card-carrying chassid means. That's the definition of a chassid. Not the beard, not the hat. It's all good. It's all important. Not the mitzvahs. Not enjoying the mitzvahs. It's making the conscious decision that I'm willing to set myself aside, my own benefit aside, and to focus on others. Let's continue. Page nine. The reason a person who leaves fingernails lying around is called wicked is because if a pregnant woman steps on them, she may have a miscarriage, God forbid. The person that buries the fingernails is not wicked because he has covered them. But this is still not absolutely perfect, and he is therefore termed righteous, not a chassid, because it is still possible for them to become uncovered. Only if the fingernails are burned is there no room for concern that they may later become revealed. There is, however, a disadvantage to burning fingernails. Burning fingernails or any other part of the human body is harmful to the person. Here, here, the downside to burning the nails is personal harm, while the downside to not burning them and merely burying is harm to someone else, a pregnant woman. In addition, it is only a possible danger 
that the buried nails might become uncovered. Nevertheless, Echas, it burns them. This is why he is defined as a chasid. Because he acts stringently and burns them even though this causes damage to him. In other words, he is willing to give up his own good for the sake of his fellow, even in a situation of mere doubt. This is the meaning of the Rebbe Hashem's statement that a chasid is a lamplighter. He goes out and attempts to kindle his fellow's lamp, even though it is certain that his fellow will allow himself, I'm sorry, it isn't, even though it isn't certain that his fellow will allow himself to be kindled, even though this demands that he momentarily take away, take himself away from his personal affairs and is unable to even think of rectifying his own personal shortcomings at this time. All right, so now we've only finished, we've only covered the first half of the story. Chassid asks, what is a lamplighter? The answer is a chassid. I'm sorry, what is a chassid? The answer, that's a lamplighter. All right. You have to go and light the lamps. Spend time and energy. And the difference between souls and lamps is lamps get lit. Souls could resist. <laughs> Fact of life. They could resist. And therefore, the lamplighter will for sure be successful in his mission every night of lighting the lamps in shtetl. The chassid is going on and trying to ignite souls. But Maybe not. No one knows. There's no way to guarantee success. And this is the definition of a chassid. You're willing to give up of yourself in order to benefit others. Even, e e even doubtfully. So now, what's the rest of the story? Even if it's in the desert, even if it's in the sea, in the ocean, what was, what was that part of the story? So page 11. There's another question to ask you. The general rule is that Torah addresses the majority, meaning Torah's commandments correspond with the state and circumstances of the majority of the Jewish people. In our case, when approached regarding their Jewish observance, most Jews respond positively. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, well, do the numbers game, most of them will respond. This raises the question regarding the minority that doesn't. Must we function as lamplighters for them too? Let's say you have someone who is very, very far away from the sky, it's far away from Judaism, and they really are, are very resistant to all of these advances. They're, they're resistant to all of these, uh, to, to, to the chassid coming, the lamplighter coming and trying to light their souls. Within this minority, there are two types. Poverty. A person can only be poor in knowledge, the lowest extreme. And wealth, a person can only be wealthy in knowledge, the highest extreme. Remember, says we're going to talk here about two opposite sides of the spectrum. We have all the middle ground, the regular average Jew. The regular average Jew responds positively to chassidus, responds positively to the light that a chassid has to bring. But then you have the, those that are on the poverty spectrum and those that are on the wealth spectrum. We'll talk about well, what do these two mean. This is the meaning of the questions regarding lamps that are in the desolate desert or at sea. These two locations represent the two extremes of poverty and wealth. And the question is whether in such circumstances the lamplighter is still obligated to kindle these lamps. What's the desolate desert? What's the poverty of the desolate desert? Page 12. <clears throat> A desert is an untraveled and uninhabited place, meaning no member of the human race, even the coarsest person, is capable of living and sustaining himself in the desolate desert. From this, we can ascertain the personal state of the person who is in a desolate desert in the spiritual sense. 
This is a person who has no qualities. He is poor in knowledge, in the extreme, possessing no wisdom or taira, no positive character traits or conduct. This guy is in the lowest, lowest of the low. We're talking here on the like like the dregs of the barrel, like really on the lowest end. The question arises: when a lamp soul is located in the desert, and one meets this person and speaks to him once, twice, and a number of times, and sees that it is a mere creation, devoid of any qualities, and isn't interested in listening, does the obligation to light the lamp remain in effect? You still have to waste your time on this guy. This guy, you know. The answer is that even when the lamp is in a desolate desert, one is obligated to go and kindle it. As the Alter Rebbe quotes in Tanya, even regarding a mere creation, we are commanded to love creations and draw them close to Torah. The order is not to first draw them close to Torah and only then to love them. Rather, we must first draw them close with strong bonds of love, and eventually this, this will lead to drawing them close to Taira. But your initial thing is, I, I located a lamp, I defined, I, I found a Jew, I love this Jew. I want to bring this person close to Taira. Why do you want to bring this person? Why, why, do you, why do you love him? Because he's close? No, he's not close yet. He or she is not close, and they're not interested, and they told me they're not interested. They're still on my list. I still need to get to them. I still need to reach them. I'm not going to take them off my list. But they said, take me off the list. Too bad. You might not be on the mailing list, but you're on my list. <laughs> so that's that's the desert. So when the Chassid asked the Rebbe, okay, I get it. You got to be a lamplighter, right? You got to go around. Yes, you're going to have to spend your time going to all the lamps and igniting them. But those are lamps that are within my vicinity. But let's say you're talking about a lamp that's all the way in the desert. A lamp that is really, really tough to get. And as I take a lot of it. A lot of effort. I might even endanger myself. Right? Going around to the desert is pretty dangerous. So hanging around such a guy, I'm, I'm opening myself up to a lot of possibilities here. Everyone says, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the definition. You got to go out to the desert. You got to go to this person and try again and again and again in order to uh, light them up. Now we're going to speak about... Uh, so, so, this, so here we, we can understand, we intuitively appreciate that there's such a concept that there could be a lamp in the desert and it's not lit. It could be a lamp, you know, any lamp that's even within close proximity to Terra Mitzvah can also be unlit, but especially a lamp that's in the desert, for sure it's not lit. What about a lamp that's in the ocean? What's the definition of ocean? Terra. Terra is compared to water. There's a certain place where there's no shortage of water, and that's the ocean. You could have a Jew that is immersed in Torah study all day and all night, full of Terra. What's the problem? His Torah is dead. His Torah is dark. It doesn't have that fire, that passion, that divinity, that godliness. It doesn't permeate that Torah. It doesn't animate that Torah. What do you do then? By the way, such a person might be harder to reach than the guy in the desert. The guy in the desert, when you come and you bring the lamp to them, they see how deserty they are. They see how desolate they are. So the chance of them gravitating to the light and, 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 and accepting it and absorbing it and becoming a lamp is very high, actually. As long as, how do you say in the story? So that the desert should see that it's a desert and be embarrassed. 
Now, all you need to do is just shine a candle in an empty space in a place devoid of spirituality, and it will it will gravitate to spirituality because at the end of the day, that's what it wants. But how are you going to approach a God who is immersed in Torah study 24-7? He also got Torah. You're coming to you're not coming to Mateo. You're coming to him with a different product. You're coming to him with a product with a candle. You're bringing in the product of godliness, divinity, the ability for that person to have a relationship with God, a passionate relationship with God. What do you do then? He's in the ocean. The meaning of sea is man's divine service, in man's divine service is in accordance with the teaching. Water means Torah. The sea is filled with water, meaning that the person is studying Torah in such a way that the Torah study doesn't just remain on the shelf, but fills all of his being. His entire being becomes saturated with Torah. This is the greatest level of wealth possible. However, it is possible for a person to be filled with Torah and yet devoid of fear of heaven. Such a person is filled with Torah, but this is a dark Torah devoid of light. Question is, how is it possible to kindle the lamp at sea? that it should become a treasure of fear of heaven, considering that all of this person's terror didn't help him. In other words, it's not a question, am I obligated to light it up? The question is, how can I light it up? It's surrounded with water. It's got so much terror, and yet, yet all that terror was not able to turn that person into a living Jew, into a bright Jew. So, so how am I going to be that? How is the lamplighter going to illuminate such a Jew? The answer to this question is that one must take off his clothes and jump into the water. You ever tried swimming in an ocean at night when it needs to when the lamp needs to be illuminated? It's not the safest thing to do. In fact, it demands a tremendous amount of sacrifice to jump into the water. So here's the thing. And it says like this, you want to light up such a lamp. You might come with all of the, I say, with all of the best logical arguments. You might come with, with, the, with the deepest type of knowledge. You won't outsmart the guy. You won't, you won't win the guy in an argument. What do you got to do? You have to display the serious knowledge, display self-sacrifice. What does that mean? You got to come and, 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 sh and, and illustrate to this Jew, this group of Jews, whatever it is. It's not about the logic. It's about the connection. Many times, I've seen this, you have people that are tremendous Torah scholars. And when they go traveling and they come to some place and they're looking for kosher food, and they find the shliach, they find the, you know, the, the Chabad rabbi there. But they ask the rabbi, do you have some milk for, for coffee? He says, sure. Says, but I'm, I'm careful with chalav Yisrael. I want to have the milk. You know, it's a special kosher milk. The rabbi says, of course, I want to have that too. And that's what gets them very impressed. They don't have an intellectual argument, an academic argument or a conversation with the rabbi and he outwits them. But it could be he knows more terror. The fact that this rabbi lives in some very far off place and yet even over here is meticulous about every single part of Judaism, every, every part of kosher, that's impressive. Even though he's in such a far place, he takes his children and he ensures that they should get a proper education. That's impressive. That, that, that completely boggles the mind. That's what makes it possible to illuminate these souls. So that's what they're saying here. 
So sometimes it's not about coming and teaching others something. Sometimes it's about putting on display your deepest convictions. Put it on display. Do it with self-sacrifice. And this will illuminate those souls as well. Let's read inside. If one will approach such a person and address him using the garments of action, speech, and thought, this won't have an effect on him. But if he'll remove his garments and jump into the water, self-sacrifice, this will have an effect on him by activating the essence of his soul that is beyond thought, speech, action, and any human understanding. When this is done, one essence is able to impact another essence. Sometimes we communicate beyond speech, beyond intellect. Sometimes we're able to communicate in an essential level. When we're doing something that's motivated and propelled by the essence of our soul, that could illuminate others around us by way of osmosis. What does that mean by way of osmosis? It communicates a certain truth that can only be perceived by the other person's essence. But when it's, when it's, when it's activated, when the essence comes to the fore, because it was activated by some expression of the essence of another Jew, it can have a tremendous impact. In simple terms, approaching a Torah scholar that doesn't have the light of fear of heaven and arguing with him intellectually will have no effect. This person already has this intellect from the Torah he studied. Yet for whatever reason, it had no effect on him. But when one approaches this person with the deep internal love that every Jew has for his fellow, which as Tanya explains is because we all share one father, using the godliness that is present in both of their souls, one will be successful in lighting even the lamp that is at sea. So, what's a chassid? Do we have, do we have a new definition of a chassid? Morachai, what's a chassid? A lamp lighter. A lamp lighter, there we go. Uh, okay, 50 no, minutes. No, yes, I, I, it's not a matter of convincing. You were able to put everything in one concept, which makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Right. Right. All right. So the truth is, I mean, only only a Rebbe could say such a thing. Only a Rebbe could a Rebbe could explain such a thing. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've never would have come up with uh, such a simple and right, uh, you know, definition. It's brilliant. Neither would I. So that's that's why we're all here. That's why we're all here. That's why we learn from the Rebbe and. And say when we allow their Rebbe to define uh, such important aspects of life to us, so everything starts to make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. As we have to right. realize, you know, at, at some point we have to kind of take a step back and, and, and appreciate the gift that the Rebbe gave us. I remember when I was a kid seeing this sign that was it, the Rebbe's gift to the world, and it had all the cities where uh, where Chabad has a permanent presence. Yeah, it's, it's a nice concept, yeah. That, you know, what's the Rebbe's gift to the world? All the Chabadists are all over the world. Um, and that's true. But what, is that, what does that mean he gifted that to the world? But what does that mean? There's something behind all of those locations. There's a reason why these locations exist. There's a reason why there are 5,000 emissary couples all around the world. There's a reason why we're in every state in the Union in over 120 countries. There's a reason why we're there. Why? Not because of opportunities that abound. Go and convince me there are opportunities in Cambodia or in South Dakota. Right? I mean, what opportunities? About to become a pulpit rabbi. Right? A lot of these places, they don't have a big shul. Right? 
So what, what's the idea here? Why are they there? Because the Rebbe, I mean, Chabad, yeah, of all the Rebbe's, and especially our Rebbe gifted us with this definition of a chassid. Yes, this is what it means to be a Hasidic Jew, to be willing to forego your own benefit in order to benefit others. You want to be a chassid? Got to get out there. You got to make it your job, make it your mission to light all the other lamps. Yes. Not the light, not the light. Light, it should be, it should be. No, 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 the question is, do they have the brightness of that fear of heaven? What did you say earlier? You said, what's a chas? someone who makes learning to do images enjoyable, very spicy. What, what, what is that? What does that mean? What does that mean? The spice, the excitement, the passion. This is a unique thing. There could be a person that's very particular about mitzvot, but it's very either rote, mechanical, or depressing. It could be very depressing. Even such a Jew has to have access to the light of Torah. I don't know if it's the, the kind of that it's easier, but it's, it, it seems to be more of a direct, um, simpler calculation of how to get such a person. When it comes to the person who already has Terry, say, what do you have to provide for me? What do you have to give me? What am I missing? And the answer is, I don't have to go and convince such a person they're missing something. But what, 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 what the lamplighter needs to ensure is that the lamplighter is projecting, projecting the self-sacrifice that they are capable of. And the love, because the selfless love for another. And that activates things that are beyond reason, beyond understanding. Beyond the normative, the, the normal way of communication. And you have to be willing to do that. It's hard work. It's like taking off your clothing and jumping into the ocean to, to reach there. But you have to be willing to do so. And that's the definition of a cost. All righty. So I guess as, as a gift to the Rebbe for, for the 11th of this in 120 years, we should become chassidim. Become lamplighters. See, it turns out that to be a chassid, you don't have to have a beard. You don't have to have a black hat. Just have to be a lamp planner. All righty. Thank you all for joining us. I look forward to seeing you next week, Sunday.